Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we'll be looking at the uh, Armenian massacres that took place in May 1915 onwards and some of the international reaction to those massacres. Keen subscribers may have noticed a bit of a disruption in the uh, output on this channel. Um, a lot going on and uh, if you hear any background noise uh, it's going to be because of some building work that's going on in the street uh, and uh, can't really be helped. Okay, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for files is at stake. On the 24th of May 1915, the Entente powers condemned Ottoman actions against the Armenians, referring to them as subhuman crimes. The Ottoman Empire had entered the Great War in October 1914 on the side of the Central Powers and had begun the war with a surprise naval attack on Russia, followed by land assaults, and then, in February 1915, an attempt to cross the Suez Canal and threaten British interests was made. Like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire was a multi-ethnic agglomeration of peoples, the dominant being the Turks, but also including a significant minority of Armenians. The Armenian ethnic group awkwardly didn't conform to the lines on the map, and occupied the Armenian plateau in the northeast of the empire, with somewhere between one and a half and two million people living within the borders of the Ottoman Empire, with more living in the Russian lands beyond. Of course, this being Eastern Europe, none of the borders conformed to the ethnicity of the people living within them, and there were and have been various machinations by various powers to incite insurrections, form new countries, and develop breakaway regions to discomfort the others. Despite an active Armenian nationalist movement that even the Turks had encouraged to upset the Russian apple, apple cart, and notwithstanding a recent history of looking to Russia for support, on the outbreak of the war, the Armenian leaders were broadly loyal to the Ottoman Empire and directed that men who were called up should serve in the Ottoman armies. In fact, the Armenians had been regarded as the, quote, most loyal of the ethnic groups, and one of their leaders had been offered a place in the Turkish government in 1914, uh, his name was Bogus Nubar. Uh, he turned the post down as he didn't feel he had a decent enough command of the Turkish language to participate properly. Broadly, the Ottoman Armenians were, were loyal, uh, despite previous large-scale massacres that had taken place in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Approximately 100,000 Armenians joined the Ottoman forces and served during the opening months of the war. However, while the Armenian leadership supported the orders for the Ottoman call-up, the Turks also expected them to call for Armenians in Russian territory to revolt against the Tsar, and the leaders of the Armenian people drew a line at this. At the same time, Armenians in Russian territory were also called up, but to the Russian side. And this, coupled with an absence of a call to arms in support of the Ottoman Empire, was interpreted as a sign of disloyalty. In December 1914 and January 1915, the Battle of Sarikamish was fought, and lost by the Ottomans. Estimates of the numbers of casualties are varied, but frostbites took a heavy toll even before the battle was fought. By the time the Ottoman forces pushed into the town of Sarikamish, 
they were badly depleted, having lost around 25,000 men to the weather conditions alone. Records show that the temperatures were consistently below minus 31 degrees centigrade, and the under-equipped Ottoman soldiers suffered grievously. Now outnumbered by the Russian forces who had not been struggling about in the terrible mountainous conditions, the Ottoman force was in a precarious position. The Russians were able to encircle the remaining forces, and although records are unclear, between this and the losses prior to the battle, it seems that the Ottomans lost between 50 and 80,000 men, possibly more. In the aftermath of the battle, the Turkish commander, Enver Pasha, sought to conceal the reasons for the defeat by blaming it on Armenian treachery. In fact, poor preparatory work, he dismissed concerns over his army's lack of winter equipment and a precarious supply situation, coupled with an underestimate of the Russians' likely strength, were the true causes of the defeat. Someone had to pay for the defeat, and the Armenians were swiftly targeted. Those Armenians who had joined the army when they were called up were rewarded for their loyalty by being disarmed, separated from the rest of the army, and either murdered or worked to death. At the same time, a programme of persecution began to root out all able-bodied Armenian men out of their villages and towns. As they were rounded up, the Armenians capable of putting up resistance were murdered, often after being tortured. Of course, in history, everything is more complicated than it seems at first look. There had been some Armenian unrest. The first town to be cleared, Zaitan, had been resisting conscription orders, but subsequent uprisings, such as in the city of Van throughout April and May, were a reaction to the repressive acts of the Turks. At Van, a force of 1,300 Armenians defended the population of some 30,000 people for 30 days until Russian forces were able to relieve them. The scale of the Van uprising marked a tipping point, though, for the Turks, and further repression followed, including the arrest and murder of Armenians living in Constantinople. A typical example of the persecution can be seen in the experience of the town of Baibort. First, the villages around the town were emptied of their Armenian inhabitants, and three quarters of the population of the town were marched south. Then, on the 1st of June, a final forced march of four or five thousand people completed the work. Within one week of the beginning of the action, all men over 15 years of age had been murdered. A contemporary source recounts the nature of the actions, and you'll have to forgive my uh, pronunciation of towns here. Persecutions accompanied by horrible torture have taken place in the Armenian village of Bajchadich, or Badizag, 2,000 families, in Ovadich, 600 families, in Arslansberg, 600 families, in Dongol, 65 families, in Sabanja, 1,000 families, in Izmid, etc., the inhabitants of Kurt Belenne, 6,000 to 7,000 families, have been expelled. In Arabkir, the Armenian population has been converted to Islam after 2,000 males were killed. It is unclear, and the key records from the period have been destroyed, whether the decision to engage in large-scale repression and genocide was driven by premeditated intention or whether it simply grew out of failed military operations. What does seem clearer is that, despite post-war denials, it seems that the genocide was planned centrally as a deliberate programme of persecution. 
the leadership of the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress, the ruling party known as the Young Turks, seems to have been involved in directing the operations, with the actual repression being carried out by special organisations coordinated by the Party and War Ministry. What is clear is the scale and horror of the massacre of the Armenian people. Between April and August, with those men who might have been able to resist the persecution out of the way, the remaining population was rounded up and forced to march to camps in northern Mesopotamia in modern-day Syria. The plan seems to have been to march the Armenians to the swampy, low-value land beyond Aleppo, but the marches themselves became a means of murdering large numbers of people. The forced marches killed thousands, and contemporary accounts are harrowing. Women whose pains came upon them on the way had to continue their journey without respite. A woman bore twins in the neighbourhood of Aintab. Next morning she had to go on. She very soon had to leave the children under a bush. And a little while after she collapsed herself. Another whose pains came upon her during the march was compelled to go on at once and fell down dead almost immediately. There were several more incidents of the same kind between Marash and Aleppo. Chillingly, the source goes on to report that of the people who set out on the journey, there are about 30,000 exiles of whom we have no news at all, as they have arrived neither at Aleppo nor at Orfa. For those who made it through the forced marches, there was little relief. Many women were expropriated for Ottoman men and were forced to renounce their Christian faith in favour of Islam, while thousands were forced into concentration camps. A source from Syria recounts how, at Aleppo, all the churches and schools are full of exiled Armenians. Rich and poor, teachers and pupils, all are brothers there, victims of the same blow. The inhabitants of the city do their utmost to alleviate the suffering. Those that are deported, women, old men, children, are obliged to cross the deserts on foot under the burning sun, often deprived of food and water. The most modest complaint is stifled by the most barbarous threats. Overpowered by fatigue, exhausted by hunger, mothers in despair leave on their way their infant children, often only six months old, and continue their journey. Even in this deplorable state, rapes and violent acts are everyday occurrences. The Armenians deported from Hajjin could not be recognised as a result of their 12 days journey. The Allies condemned the actions taking place in the Ottoman Empire and said that those who were responsible would be held personally responsible. The Turks responded that they were simply exercising their right to self-defence. In a rare moment of hope for the Armenians, the French rescued 4,000 refugees from Port Said, evacuating them in five warships. Then, later in 1916, the British went as far as to commission a parliamentary report compiled by Viscount Bryce and the historian Arnold Toynbee, running to 746 pages based on eyewitness reports and over a hundred different sources. The reports documented the Armenian genocide in painful detail. The accounts in this article are derived from the Bryce report. The Germans, who were formerly allied to the Ottomans, were forced to look on with uncomfortable silence treading a fine line between personally loathing the actions, but unwilling to do anything officially in case it damaged the alliance. The Armenians had asked for formal German protection on April the 14th, but this was rejected. 
The German ambassador in Constantinople expressed his hope that the Turkish government would avoid Christian massacres, but was told that given the poorly trained nature of the troops involved, it was inevitable that unfortunate incidents would occur. As the persecution spread, the German vice-consul at Erzurum was instructed to intervene to prevent mass massacres, but to do so in a way that avoided implying that the Germans were exercising a right of protection over the Armenians or to interfere in the activities of the authorities. Hardly a rousing call for decisive action there. Despite official reticence, Germans who witnessed the events wrote letters to officials and tried to intercede on behalf of the Armenians. For example... I want to beg our friends at home not to grow weary of making intercession for the members of the Armenian nation who are in exile here. If there is no visible prospect of change for the better, a few months more will see the end of them all. They are succumbing in thousands to famine, pestilence and the inclemency of the weather. The exiles at Hama, Homs and in the neighbourhood of Damascus are comparatively better off. They are left where they are and can look about for means of subsistence. But further east, along the Euphrates, they are driven from place to place, plundered and maltreated. Many of our friends are dead. Across the world, humanitarian efforts were made to raise funds to support the Armenians. Many of these initiatives were to continue well after the war, but it was too little, too late. The damage had been done, the Armenian peoples had been hollowed out, and their long quest for justice had begun. We'll leave the final words to an Armenian poet, Avatik Isahakian, who wrote, So great is the anguish and the suffering of the Armenians, so hideous and unprecedented that the infinity and fathomlessness of the universe must be considerate in gauging it. There are no words in the dictionaries to qualify the hideousness of the terrors. Not a single poet can find words. As he says, there are no real words to follow that. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode uh, from 1914-1918 war. Um, not sure when the next episode will be out. Uh, like I said, pretty disrupted at the moment. Um, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.